At the beginning of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus enumerates the common conditions that will mark the age of the church. That's the age we're in, and what he lets us know is that we're in for a difficult time. Welcome on this good day that the Lord has made. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is presented by the International Disciple-Making Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. I encourage you to learn more about the amazing work we're doing around the world. Just go to traincpe.org, and to learn more about our radio ministry and our missions fellowship in Boise, Idaho, go to breadoflifeboise.org. It's from that fellowship that we share with you God's Word. What do false prophets, false messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, and persecutions all have in common? They are the common things that Jesus told his disciples to expect in the age of the church. Yes, that's the age we are in. Expect it, and thank God when you don't experience it. To these things, he adds, there's going to be persecution, and there's going to be martyrdom. The church age has been marked throughout by persecution and martyrdom. Our experience of peace and freedom of worship in America is an anomaly in the history of this age. It's not the norm. We read of the persecution of the church in different places around the world. There are magazines that you can read about. You can find books and you can read about it. You can pick up an old book like Fox's Book of Martyrs and read about these things. And you marvel that these things took place. They seem startling and they seem strange to you. But that only reveals how blessed we've been in our land. Because this has been the common experience of the vast majority of the faithful throughout the ages. And the believer throughout this age is the experience of persecution, experience of tribulation, experiences of martyrdom. So we should be thankful for how blessed we are, but we shouldn't be surprised if things change. I've got a question here for you. A society needs something in order to persecute individuals within their midst. What does a society need in order to persecute individuals in their midst? What would a society need in order to begin persecuting, for example, the Christian population among them? Here's an answer for you. They need to feel that they have the moral high ground. They need to feel that they have the moral high ground. They must determine that the Christian is a threat to the cohesiveness of the social fabric and that they're justified in persecuting them. Now, the odd changes that we're seeing in which the moral traditions and the Judeo-Christian values that have shaped our land are being turned upside down may just be paving the way for such a thing as that. Just establishing the moral grounds through which persecution will rise up. I have traveled a lot around the world, and it has been my thought at times when I'm traveling into some of these places. You know, when you're traveling into Indonesia. This last week we had a ministry in the Embong province of Indonesia, and it is the most radically committed Muslim part of Indonesia. And there are churches there, and they experience profound persecution. We're carrying a ministry with a cluster of those churches. Well, I've gone to places like that. Sometimes I wonder to myself, I wonder if I will be martyred for my faith in these places. There was a time when I was concerned that I would be martyred for being an American in those places. So I would wear a Canadian lapel pin. I lived in Canada, so I would have a little maple leaf on my thing. I thought maybe that might guard me from that. I don't walk around with an American flag, you know, when I go to some of these places. Just being a little wise, I love my country. I love my country. But I don't want to die as a martyr to America. I want to die as a martyr to Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's how I have to go in martyrdom. 
I want to go as somebody who recognizes a follower of Jesus Christ and it's his name that I'm bearing upon myself. Well, I've wondered that. I wonder if that might take place. Of late, I've wondered if I live long enough, it might not just happen here in my own country, in my own land. When you see the things that are shifting around us, I'm not being alarming here. I'm not trying to stir up some sense of conspiracy or anything like that. The Lord Jesus said, these are the things that will mark the ages in which we live now. We ought to be thank the Lord and, and bless the Lord that we've lived in this oasis of peace in this land. And we should still take advantage of that to advance the gospel with boldness. Because this is an envelope in time. And it's a brief envelope in time. And it's a brief envelope of grace in the midst of what the Lord Jesus is describing when we mark the age, the church age in which we live. Here's another thing that he says. Apostasy, betrayal, hatred of false brethren, false prophets, he says, will also abound. He says here in verse 10, and then shall many be offended. That word there, if you might remember, Jesus said, blessed are those who are not offended in me. He's talking about those individuals who profess some faith and some belief in him, but now they're scandalized. They're scandalized by the fact that they're going through all these difficulties and all these hardships and that there's all this affliction taking place. And then it says they'll betray one another and they'll hate one another. And so he's describing apostasy, people turning away from the faith, people in their apostasy actually betraying those who they shared or once professed the faith with, and a hatred of false brethren, and the hatred of false brethren that will rise up, and then false prophets that will also rise up. Again, if you take the on-again, off-again believer, if you take the unregenerate person who's a professor in Christianity, but they've really not been changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit, and you expose them to trials and tribulations and persecutions, or you just subject them to being unfashionable and to the accusation of being out of touch with the times and being somehow against the social movement of the age, they will begin to inch further and further away from the thing and the faith that they once professed. They will even eventually depart from the faith. They will even turn against the faithful who don't depart from the faith. And that's the way it's been since the early church. You can read about it even in reading through the New Testament of individuals like that. John wrote, they went out from us because they were not a part of us, because if they were a part of us, they would have not have gone out from us. Paul speaks of being persecuted by the so-called brethren. So it will continue, and it will peak with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another thing. He says there will be lawlessness and there will be lovelessness that takes place. And this is not to be unexpected. Laws, you see, are for lovers. The root of enduring lawfulness is love. You love something, you follow its rules. You love a nation, you follow the rules of the nation. You love a person, you find out what they desire, what delights them, what pleases them, and that becomes their desire, their delights, their pleasures become your law. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, we read the command that women are to obey or submit to their husbands, and then right after that we read that men are to love their wives, and these two commands are both coming at the same thing. If a woman loves her husband, she'll submit her life to his good pleasure. She'll obey him. If a man loves his wife, he does precisely the same thing. He finds a thing that delights and pleases his wife, and it becomes an inner law for him. And he lives according to it to please her and to honor her and to bless her. And it's just a loving thing that leads to following the laws of that individual. And just the same way, when you love something, you follow the laws of that thing. And so 
Inversely, if love leads to lawfulness, lovelessness leads to lawlessness. If you love the Lord Jesus, you'll obey him and you'll follow him. But if you let your love grow cold, you'll depart from him and from his laws. And this lawless, loveless society will appear in greater and greater frequency throughout the age in which we live as men become increasingly more and more lovers of themselves, lovers of their own pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And if you can't love God, you will be incapable of loving others. So it won't be a surprise that it'll be an age marked by lawlessness. But still, in all these things, the end will not come. This is not a description of the time of the great tribulation. It's a description of our times and our age. And so the Lord Jesus gives a command to us or a word of encouragement or exhortation to us before all these things. He says, but to him who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Jesus is calling for a response to the challenge of the age in which we live in. We're to meet these things not with naive expectations that everything is going to get better and better, but with endurance to the very end. But in that endurance, what are we to be doing? Well, we're to be loving the Lord Jesus, and we're to be keeping his command to us. And what is his command? What's to mark the church that endures in the midst of the age in which we live? Well, that's the third thing that we note here in this passage. You'll remember that the last command that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended to heaven, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That was the command he gave them. And here at the very end of this description of the age, the Lord Jesus indicates that this command will be followed and carried out by those who endure. And so he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This doesn't mean that Jesus can't come at any time until every nation and every tribe has heard the gospel. What it means is that we are to be about our mission regardless of the challenges of the age, regardless of the resistance and regardless of the things that we must endure through, for this is the season that he's given us to preach the gospel in all the world. Jesus is letting his disciples know that they are going to carry on with their mission regardless of how the world is falling out around them and that they are not to be stopped by any of the resistance that they meet. Now this is relevant because right after this, they're going to experience the Last Supper together. And then right after this, Jesus is going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then right after that, he's going to be crucified. He's telling them, listen, I'm going to give you a mission. And you're going to carry it out to declare my gospel and my message to the end of the age, even when the nation seems to be turning around and history seems to be turning against you. You're to do these things. Only one thing will bring their mission and ours to the end. And it's not the resistance of this age. It's not all the things that we encounter that go against our hopes and our aspirations and our longings for this world. The only thing that will bring our mission to an end is Jesus Christ's return to earth to set up his kingdom. The concern that we should be most fixed upon is not the when and how of his return, but how much are we faithful to his final command. That's where he brings his disciples back to. There's work to be done here. You have these concerns, and I recognize it, and I'm going to share with you ideas, but here's the thing I want you to understand, and all of it, here's what I want to be found in you. I want you to be found faithful to me. I want you to endure in the midst of these challenges, these resistance. I want you to give 
uh, positive expression of the gospel message until I return. The other thing we should see in the statement of the Lord Jesus at the end of all this is that he gives a positive promise to us in the midst of the distress of the age in which we live. Our mission to share the gospel to the ends of the earth will succeed. The suffering and enduring church will prevail in the midst of the darkness of the hour. Ours is not a lost cause. It's the prevailing cause. And Christ is behind it. And his sovereign determination is behind it. So these are the things that we take to ourselves. These are the things that give us great hope. We remember these things as we come before this table. This table which reveals the suffering of our Savior on our behalf. His blood that was shed for us. His body that was broken for us. The Lord Jesus calls his community together, his community that's been commissioned to take the message of his sacrifice to the ends of the earth. And he says, now I want you to eat this meal and I will not eat it with you again until I eat it with you within the kingdom. And Paul says, we eat this meal and we proclaim the Lord's death until he come. We continue to proclaim the work and the left and the sacrifice and the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ until he comes a second time. And this table reminds us that that is our mission. And this table also reminds us that we don't commune around just victory, although this is victory for us. We commune around the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. We commune around the suffering He took upon Himself for our sake. And we willingly suffer with Him. We drink the cup that He drank on our behalf, suffering with Him to bring this gospel to all the earth until He comes. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.